This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistlebloweratorneys.com. Welcome to the fifth installment of the Whistleblower Laws podcast, where today we'll go over some of the more common defenses to these claims, as well as some practice pitfalls. I think it makes sense to approach this chronologically after the filing of the lawsuit. Most KETAM cases will face an immediate motion to dismiss after filing, based upon Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 9b. This rule provides that cases such as KETAMs that are based on fraud must state with particularity the circumstances constituting the fraud or mistake. Now, In my humble opinion, this rule has been stretched beyond the boundaries of common sense to restrict the rights of relators from bringing good cases. Defendants will claim that the complaint does not provide sufficient details or specificity to comply with the rule. Unfortunately for us relators' counsel, many courts often agree with them. Because of the widespread application of this rule, we and most other relators' counsel employ a pretty rigorous standard on the types of cases we'll file. If we don't think we have enough specificity to survive 9b, we won't file a case. Courts have developed rules that relators need to allege the who, what, where, and when of the fraud. In many instances, relators don't have all the details, but they know they witnessed fraud. Sometimes it may make sense to combine cases with another relator who can fill in the blanks on what is missing. I will add, and this is important, that there is divergence among the circuits on this rule. Relators need to be very careful where they file for fear of facing a 9b challenge. Beyond Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 9 B, defendants will often use Rule 12b-6, claiming relators fail to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. This is also a misguided and stretched to absurdity rule. The takeaway on these defenses is to gather all the details you can in advance of filing, amend the complaint prior to serving or unsealing, and add all possible details, or face dismissal on these fronts. Beyond these two rules, there are several other common defenses that most KETAMs will face. Let's take a minute to talk about the statute of limitations and the defenses that it provides. The False Claims Act provides a robust six-year statute of limitations with a 10-year period of repose. The statute of limitations is limited to three years once the government becomes aware of the underlying conduct. If you wait too long to file your case, the statute of limitations can limit your case entirely or limit the scope of recoveries. In addition to the statute of limitations, the first-to-file rule is another common defense. The first-to-file rule, as previously discussed, serves to limit recoveries to only the relator who files first in time. Later filing relators can sometimes seek an agreement between and among the relators to share the proceeds, but this is not a requirement. In addition to the first-to-file rule, the public disclosure bar and original source exception have applied to limit KETAM relators' recoveries in many instances. The public disclosure bar works this way. The government only needs whistleblowers who come forward with original, unique information and not information about things they're already aware of. If the basis of your case is built upon knowledge already in possession of the government or publicly available through enumerated means within the False Claims Act itself, then you are barred from proceeding with your QTAM case. As we'll discuss momentarily, several of the recent amendments to the False Claims Act are designed to expand the original source exception or limit the public disclosure bar. Another common defense that defendants mount against false claims cases is a lack of materiality. 
Just a few months ago, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Universal Health Services versus Escobar that implied false certification theory provides a basis for FCA liability when two conditions are satisfied, and those are, one, the claim not only requests payment but also makes specific representations regarding the goods or services, and two, failing to disclose noncompliance with material statutory, regulatory, or contractual requirements makes them misleading half-truths. Defendants have used materiality as a defense, claiming that certain frauds are not a condition of payment, but rather are conditions of participation. This defense has gone by the wayside with the recent Escobar decision. Seal violations are rare, but when appropriate, defendants can raise seal violations in order to get a relator's case dismissed. The seal is taken very seriously by all parties to a QTAM, from DOJ and AUSAs to the judge and investigating agencies. Relators and their counsel should be mindful not to violate the seal. While not an absolute defense, but more of an affirmative defense, kickback cases will often see safe harbors pled. Safe harbors are regulatory guidelines that allow for certain behavior under certain limited circumstances. At this point, we should go back and revisit the first episode where I promised to expand on amendments to the False Claims Act. There are many instances where the amendments intersect with some of these defenses. First, let's talk about the 1986 changes. The first amendment in the 1986 changes was the elimination of the government possession of information bar. Originally, defendants could claim that the government was in possession of any material aspect of the claim, thereby mooting the entire case. The 86 changes did away with this. Second, defendants' liability for deliberate ignorance and reckless disregard of the truth was added to the law so as to decrease the pleading standard. A third aspect to the 1986 amendments was restoration of the preponderance of the evidence standard for all elements of the claim, including damages. In addition, treble damages and civil penalties of $5,000 to $10,000 per claim were added. Rewards for successful QTAM plaintiffs were increased to between 15 and 30 percent of the amount recovered from the defendant. You may recall in the original iteration of the False Claims Act, up to 50 percent of the recovery was shared. That was later lowered to 10. Most importantly from our perspective, the defendant's required payment of the successful plaintiff's expenses and attorney's fees was added in 1986. This means that individuals seeking counsel no longer have to worry about attorney's fees. Finally, employment protection for whistleblowers was added, including reinstatement with seniority status, special damages, and double back pay. In 2009, FARA, or the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act, was signed into law. This included the most significant amendments to the FCA between 1986 and 2009. FARA enacted the following changes, which substantially limited some of the more common defenses at the time. First, it expanded the scope of potential FCA liability by eliminating the presentment requirement which was previously announced in the Supreme Court's opinion in Allison Engine v. Sanders. Second, it redefined claim under the False Claims Act to greatly expand it beyond its original intention. Third, it amended the intent requirement, now requiring only that a false statement be material to a false claim. Fourth, it expanded and added conspiracy liability for any violation of the above provisions of the False Claims Act. Fifth, it amended the reverse false claims provisions to expand liability to knowingly and improperly avoiding or decreasing an obligation to pay or transmit money to the government. 
Sixth, it increased protection for QTAM plaintiffs beyond employees to include contractors and agents. The seventh aspect to the 2009 amendments actually benefited the government. It allowed the government's complaint and intervention to relate back to the QTAM plaintiff's original filing. Finally, it increased the Attorney General's power to delegate authority to conduct civil investigative demands akin to subpoenas prior to intervening in an FCA action. One year later, on March 23rd of 2010, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as the Health Reform Bill or Obamacare, was signed into law by President Barack Obama. The Affordable Care Act made further substantial amendments to the False Claims Act, including the following. First, significant changes to the public disclosure bar. Under the prior version of the False Claims Act, cases filed by individuals could be barred if it was determined that they were based on public disclosures. The Affordable Care Act amended the language of the False Claims Act to allow the federal government to have the final word on whether a court would dismiss a case based on a public disclosure, thereby rendering this provision discretionary in the hands of the Department of Justice. Second, the Affordable Care Act greatly expanded the original source exceptions to the public disclosure bar. Previously, an original source must have had direct and independent knowledge of the information on which the allegations are based. Under the amendment, an original source is someone who has knowledge that is independent of and materially adds to the publicly disclosed allegations. A third provision in the Affordable Care Act amendments relates to overpayments, and this is an important distinction for health care providers. Under the amendments, overpayments for Medicare or Medicaid must be reported and returned within 60 days of discovery or the date a hospital report is due. Failure to timely report and return overpayments exposes the provider to additional separate liability under the False Claims Act. So consider that for a second. You have the underlying violations such as upcoding or billing for services not rendered. That's a standalone False Claims Act action on itself. Then the hospital becomes aware of it and decides not to report and return this money. That is a separate violation under the Affordable Care Act Amendment. Fourth and finally, the Affordable Care Act amendments substantially clarified and expanded statutory anti-kickback liability. The anti-kickback statute was a criminal statute which made it improper for anyone to solicit, receive, offer, or pay remuneration in exchange for referring patients to receive services or goods paid for by the government. Many courts prior to these amendments had interpreted the False Claims Act to mean claims submitted as a result of a kickback violation were false claims that could give rise to liability. However, some courts found this to be simply the majority rule and held otherwise. Importantly, the Affordable Care Act changed the language of the anti-kickback statutes to provide that any claim submitted in violation of the anti-kickback laws automatically constitutes a false claim for purposes of the False Claims Act. Well, that was a lot to cover, but I think you can tell that litigating these cases is a highly complex and difficult process. There are a number of pitfalls that can occur and defenses that relators will face, so it's wise to use experienced counsel. In our next and final episode, we'll discuss the resolution or settlement of these claims, including mediation, determination of relator share, and tactics used to effectuate the best settlement.